I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 19 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This episode's title is Murphy Rex, Complexity and War. A little housekeeping, I've had some uh, interesting conversations with listeners, and one of them asked me, well, Bill, how do you keep up with the, uh, the war in Ukraine and Russia and what's going on? As I have told you in the past, it is the one conflict in my, entol- in my entire adult life of watching conflict as both a profession and an interest planet-wide in which I can't trust any of the sources. But I do find one of the singular voices of sobriety and just um, spot-on analysis happens to be Colonel Douglas McGregor. So if you can catch his observations on the conflict, I highly recommend them. Uh, What have I been reading lately? My listeners are always asking me that. Currently, I started Alan Eckert's Narratives of America, The Frontiersman, which is about the irregular conflicts and settling of the North American landmass with colonials versus Brits versus aboriginals in the late 18th century. And Eckert is fascinating. He, he, he really foot, footnotes these historical novels. And for the most part, he has this conceit, and I believe that these books were written in the 1960s, in which these are fact, not fiction, but he weaves them into a narrative to make the factual telling more interesting. Also, as a result of uh, correspondence uh, and really interesting conversations I have with my friend E.F., he recommended Etan Shamir's Transforming Command about uh, how Mission Command is, is changing the way things are done. Well, actually, it's not changing the way things are done now because it's adopting what the Prussians started in 1805, ending in 1945, which is known by the German term Auftragstaktik, which means Mission Command, which means the ability of lower echelons to assume their initiative, even if it results in what has been characterized as the Prussian culture of disobedience. I like Shamir's work. My original work and inspiration for Mission Command came from my friend Don Vandergriff. I recommend all of his books on this. He is the guy who really introduced me to the notion, convinced me the notion was, uh, was efficacious and saleable when it comes to conducting conflict, and I recommend it. Uh, I just spent the last week, the week before last, shall I say, at the Military Oper- Operations Research Society Annual Symposium, which is uh, usually at a service academy, and this year it was at West Point, New York. So I had the opportunity to go there for a week and mingle with other defense intellectuals and folks who were interested in conflict and war and the way things go. I had a great week, gave uh, five presentations, among which was my annual tutorial on anti-fragility and systems engineering and anti-fragility and the future of conflict, 
which I really enjoy. And then I gave a couple others to include my notions of anti-fragility and counterinsurgency, in which to, for those listeners who haven't listened to, I think it was the second or third episode in this entire series, my conceit is very simple. It is this. Most insurgencies are anti-fragile, and all counterinsurgencies are fragile. And I expanded upon that uh, during the week. I also uh, did a new presentation and a paper that I presented called Prometheus's Gift about decanting smaller conflict from larger conflict. And of course, the abstract and precy of that is rather elegantly simple, which is that when large wars are started, they uncork, decant, and make free all the other simmering conflicts that have been going on for years, decades, or centuries, and give them the sea room to make those conflicts real in the world. Uh, so I had a great time. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's terrific to be around people who have some of the same narrow and rather arcane interests that I do. So I really enjoyed that time there. And again, if you wish to correspond with me, that would be cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So let's get into the meat of the episode today. Why did I call this episode Murphy Rex? Because Murphy's Law, which when things go wrong, they will go wrong. And if they can go wrong, they will go wrong in a big way. I would say instantiates itself in everyday life and I would say also that it characterizes conflict, large, small, uh, and everything in between, because that's what happens. Now, I would, as, as a matter of fact, I would suggest that Murphy is the king of battle and not artillery. Sorry for my artillerist in the audience, and infantry remains the queen of battle in my estimation. So for the purposes of this podcast, we will refer to artillery as the minister without portfolio in battle. So those who haven't read the turgid, long, philosophically thick, and I would consider difficult for most novice readers, Klaus Carl Klaus On War from the 18th century, I would recommend it, or I'd recommend you read an economical version of it, maybe a short version or a truncated or abridged version of it. Well, Clausewitz, in this case, deserves a lot more attention in other episodes, but I'm only going to pay attention to one notion that Clausewitz had when it comes to this entire thing, and that's this. When it comes to conflict, he talked about something called friction and fog. Now, fog is only mentioned three times in the entire text of On War. What he means by fog is once one sets a plan in action, sets a plan in motion in conflict, and the two-way range begins, and the war begins, and the shots are fired, and the conflict is on, things go awry. Now, I think that fog is, uh, there's a reason why he didn't spend too much time on it, but he does come up with this very interesting notion of friction. And what he's saying with friction is that Friction is all those things that go awry and go wrong when two or more very large human endeavors, in this case, conflict and war, get together, clash, and things aren't always going as planned. Things occur that weren't planned at all. 
accidents happen. As a matter of fact, it is my notion that when it comes to the Medal of Honor, which I find very interesting to read the stories of how folks get the Medal of Honor in U.S. arms and conflict, that you, you start to come to the conclusion that all heroes, for the most part, are heroes because of accidents. Heroes aren't heroes because things were planned and went well. Heroes are heroes because they improvise and adapt in the face of changing circumstances to either help their fellow soldiers, like jumping on a grenade, or in going after a, um, a certain objective that may not have been in the plans in the first place. Things change, things alter, fog rolls in, and the charge is made, and apparently things go right. Now, most, I wonder, I haven't looked at the numbers, most Medal of Honor win winners tend to be posthumous, which means that they died in the conduct of the very things that got them the medal in the first place. But nonetheless, I, I hold to that. I think that uh, when it comes to the Medal of Honor and heroism, I salute all of them. But for the most part, you find that heroes are a result of accidents. So I bring this up about Clausewitzian friction because it is the thing that is probably the hallmark characteristic of all conflict, large and small. And that's what got me to thinking when I was reading Eitan Shamir's book, Transforming Command, in which he talked about Aufträgstaktik, that peculiar, hard-to-get-your-tongue-around German term that means mission command. And all mission command is about, quite simply is making sure that all echelonments are aware of the commander's intent when the kickoff begins for armed conflict, and that once that happens, as a result of the friction and fog of war and things in which things go awry, mistakes are made, things like that, if you know the commander's intent, you can improvise, you can recharacterize, you can move ahead, you can... Uh, come up to an obstacle and find a way to either go around that obstacle, through it, whatever the case may be, but you have the character, the training, and the means by which you can satisfy that commander's intent, even if, let's suppose you're a platoon leader and your company commander is dead, your battalion commander is dead, your regimental commander is dead, but you know your regimental commander's intent. Therefore, if you can gather your forces and assume your command presence, and move forward and satisfy that intent, as a result of that, whatever the plans were made, because we all know what happens to plans once they're put into motion, whatever plans were made can be satisfied to a certain extent. Now, whether those plans are satisfied to 100%, that's probably not the case most of the time. Now, I haven't completed Shamir's book, but I highly recommend it. He does something really interesting where he is comparing how the instantiation of mission command appears in the U.S., in the British Armed Forces, and the Israeli Armed Forces, and where they're most effectively employed and where they are not so effectively employed. Now, I'm looking forward to reading, uh, and I'll report further in, a, in another uh, podcast episode on what, what his conclusions were and how I feel about those conclusions. I find that when it comes to American arms, we have ADRP and ADP 3.0, which is operations, and they call it mission command, that the U.S. DOD gives a whole lot of lip service to mission command. 
but the only ones I ever observe practicing mission command would be soft forces, not the elite forces like the 101st Airborne Division or the 82nd Airborne Division or the line forces or the new paratrooper forces that we see in Alaska, in Hawaii, or any of those. I don't see it happening. They, they talk to mission command, but we still suffer, and this has been since World War II, a very sclerotic, arthritic, highly Sovietized, centralized means of planning and executing and prosecuting conflict for Americans. I do think that as a result of that, it is one reason why America has failed to win a conflict since 1945. For those listeners who are new to the show and haven't listened to previous podcasts, uh, I would suggest that those who write to me and say, but we won in 1991 in Desert Storm, not only is that not correct because we ended up going back there in 2003, but there were a number of things in spite of adopting the notions that we did for that conflict, which was relatively successful at an operational level, but not at a strategic level, that because of that, there was no reflection as a result. Because remember what happened then. Not only did America best the fourth largest army in the world, the Iraqi Armed Forces. By the way, when when, uh, when you look at the total aid that's given to Ukraine as, as an aside, they are the third most... Um, well-funded military on the planet behind the U.S. and China. Isn't that interesting? And we can see the results of that. McGregor makes some interesting observations about that. Remember, Colonel Douglas McGregor was, I think he was either the battalion or brigade commander for at 73 Easting, probably the last tank against tank battle in human history, which took place in 1991. Now, what you discover is that that mission command doesn't quite settle itself into the way the Americans either think about war or conduct war. It's it's one thing to have the ambition, but ambition is cheap. It's quite another to allow your subordinate officers and NCOs to go forward and even adopt within America this notion of the Prussian culture of disobedience. You know, for the longest time, Listening to the Western media and such, you'd think that all German soldiers from 1805 to 1945 were nothing more than automatons and robots who obeyed all orders and did all. It's all poppycock. That's not quite the case. But nonetheless, it takes a much deeper reading of history to appreciate that that wasn't the case. Now, not only do I think there is a connection to my notions of anti-fragility and fragility with this, but... Shamir makes this really interesting point, and I'm paraphrasing. He says that war is the greatest arena for complex adaptive systems in action that mankind takes part in. And boy, it, it, it seems to be the case. For those of you who are military historians, amateur and professional, in the audience, you discover that Rarely is there a conflict that lasts a couple of weeks, even though that is the ambition. Rarely is a conflict entered into out of desperation. And rarely is the template for the conflict, whether from those who start the war or those who have the war started against them, must respond on the two-way ranges, either regionally or planet-wide. The plans that are laid early on have to be adapted over time. 
because complexity and chaos starts to enter the picture. The distinction between complexity and chaos is that chaos is going to be all of those things that start to swirl as a result of that Clausewitzian fog and friction. Complexity is, for instance, if we distill it down to logistics, it would be, as I've entertained in other episodes, the fact that David Stahel, the Australian historian who's done a tremendous job investigating and documenting the Wehrmacht in World War II on the Eastern Front, I, I think he may be one of our most preeminent Eastern Front historians, he's the one who said not only did the Germans lose in the summer of 1941, and it took them four years to perish, but logistically, they were so incredibly immature in their approach, their branches and sequels, which means what are we going to do if this doesn't work? What are we going to do if this manufacturing base isn't captured? How are we going to press ahead with that? Because I think as a result of all the Western European expansion by the Germans, starting with the assault on Poland and then ending with the six-week campaign in France and everything in between, they had assumed that there would be no positional warfare. There would be no attrition warfare, that blitzkrieg, lightning war, maneuver warfare, combined arms warfare would win the day even in the Eastern conflict. What they didn't seem to take an appreciation of, even though there were warnings by members of the staff and some of the commanding generals, was that if you don't have a logistical plan that is not only hardened and resilient, but anti-fragile to the smallest extent so that we can replace things that are lost and find other means to supply if other means are exhausted, none of that was taken into account. So while I find the vaunted Wehrmacht war machine at a tactical and operational level to be superb up until April 1945, when it comes to logistics and as demonstrated during the Battle of Britain, which was going to be a preamble to the German invasion of England and Operation Sea Lion, but of course they failed. They failed in a very large fashion. Now, then we have the summer of 1941, after the Battle of Britain has extinguished any hopes on the part of the German general staff to conduct a cross-channel invasion and take England and occupy England. I just wonder mathematically, a, a country the size of Montana, which is Germany at the time, having these almost uh, regional hegemon ambitions from the Russian frontier before summer of 1941 all the way over to England, thinking that they could staff that occupation, they could logistically take advantage of the occupation. Maybe they would find a way where they can turn around on a dime and take all the industri industries that they had captured in those Western countries and turn them to in a fashion so that they could prosecute this war in the East. Hindsight, particularly the counterfactuals that we entertain as amateur historians, is 2020, and we tend to have all the information at our means to give us a much fuller understanding and situational awareness of what happened, which may not have been the case for all the decision makers in the trenches and in the very nice offices in Berlin and such who were taking this upon themselves. Again, complex adaptive systems. Now, all that elegant phrase means is that 
Complex means that there are a lot of moving parts. Adaptive means that things aren't always going to go to plan. And systems means, in this case, system of systems, the interaction of many systems with each other. Uh, For instance, big fan of Elon Musk, you will find that in the engineering community, building rocket engines may be one of the most difficult enterprises outside of building nuclear weapons that mankind has ever done, where you are successfully lobbing a heavy object into suborbital or beyond space and what it takes for that to do it. Now, when it comes to the conflicts and war and the enterprise of war, there is always an assumption that we've got all these plans. And and mind you, I'm not saying that one shouldn't plan because there's no willful execution and war and conflict absent planning, which takes into account training, logistics, maneuver, and the proper combinations and the proper coordination and the proper appreciation of the complexities of the interactions of all of these systems, hence the systems of systems approach that may not always be the conscious competence of war making, but it is always the characterization of war when it begins, during its entirety, and when it ends. Many of you will wonder, well, but Bill, this is from the University of the Intuitively Obvious that war is not only a complex adaptive system, that war is not only riven by friction and lack of planning and things that go awry and accidents that occur at the lowest level to the highest level. And what could that possibly have to offer us? Well, what it offers us is that we know that when it comes to conscious competence and unconscious competence, what informs that a lot is not only training, it's also planning, it's also the means by which Using Auftrag's tactic, the Germans assumed, in this case, that being complex adaptive citizens, systems and having friction, it's a, it's, it's a feature, not a bug in all warfare. Make that assumption from the start that things are going to go awry. If you make that assumption from the start, then what one can do is in training, especially of those who are coordinating and moving the levers of power from the lowest to the highest level, from the tactical to the operational to the strategic, even so to the grand strategic level, operating those levers of power in a a way that not only is built on sufficient training, but it's built on a way so that when things go wrong, you can respond in a fashion that will allow your battle drills to lead you to success instead of failure. Remember, peace is an interregnum between wars. If I recall, since America's founding, if not, let's call it 1791, since the ratification of the Constitution forming the United States, the United States has not been involved actively in a conflict for a total of seven years. I think the British have a similar track record when it comes to that. When you look at all the wars that America hasn't been involved in, and of course we will treat this in future episodes as far as the aboriginal conflicts starting in the 16th century in America and moving all the way to the 1910s and 1920s for the final pacification of all the original landowners 
in North America between the Canadian and the Mexican border, that, uh, that, that was a case where an insurgency and a counterinsurgency started to go back and forth, but finally the problem was eradicated in a most Roman fashion. I guess the point that I want to make is that if America has been at war for so long and America has failed to win a significant conflict or practically any conflict since 1945, why is that? And I think the, um, the Germans and, and others, and especially in Shamir's book, Transforming Command, gives us an insight into that where I do think Auftrag's tactic has a lot to say about winning war at the smaller levels, at the tactical and operational levels, if America would pay attention to it. I think they're giving it lip service, as I had previously said. Soft forces, not so much. Soft forces, special operations forces, have this very interesting notion called strategic compression, which is the employment of tactical operations, which tend to be smaller units than larger units, tactical operations kinetically to achieve strategic objectives. For instance, hunting down scuds, other strategic reconnaissance missions throughout the Afghan-Iraqi conflict, uh, attempts that were made, for instance, in Mogadishu 1993 by the Rangers and Delta to do what they did. It was strategic compression in that they were going to capture warlords and warlord appointees. And through that capture and rendition, they would take the wind out of the sails of the conflict in Somalia. Didn't quite work that way. But nonetheless, it's very close to Auftrag's tactic. One thing that you find done in special forces is that there's a very specific process by which they conduct mission planning. So in the end, what they do is they give a brief back to the commander of his intent. The detachment normally, if time permits, will do a four-day isolation facility investigation of the intent that the commander initially gives them. And then, as a result of that, after receipt of mission, conducting the mission analysis, developing their courses of action, and then doing the analysis and comparison of those, then they start the detailed mission planning. Then, uh, And they always have access, even though they're an isolation facility, to further information that they need. For instance, other activities that are conducted on days two and three are they'll coordinate ranges and training areas. They'll do mission-specific equipment draws, those kind of things. And finally, ideally, on day four, they conduct a brief back with the commander, in this case, the, uh, the, the operational detachment Charlie, which is the battalion commander, operational detachment Bravo is the company commander, who, when the operational detachment Alpha, the A-team deploys, he is under the OPCON, the operational control of the battalion commander, and under the ADCON, administrative control for beans and bullets of the B-team commander. In essence, in special forces, as a as a quick aside, once you have completed all of your A-team leadership assignments as an officer, you won't be leading men, per se, in the field until you reach battalion command within a special forces group. So once that brief back is conducted, the plan is adjusted as needed per the feedback that they get from the commander, and then they move forward with that. For those of you interested, I highly recommend the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide. Uh, the latest one was published in January 2020 
by DA. I have employed uh, parts or a whole of this in my civilian jobs, and I found it to be a really great way of getting stuff done. It's effective. It's efficient. Remember what I've said before. You could be efficient, but not necessarily effective. But if you're effective, most likely you're efficient. In this case, I I found it a a really good way to get the vision and intent of the commander or in the civilian world, your department heads or the echelons above you to get a really clear picture of what they want you to achieve. And if you maintain that clarity and understanding of what that intent is, you will be better able to serve what you're trying to get in the end within your civilian job. Sort of circling back to what brought us to our complexity discussion in the first place, this planning guide and what Army Special Forces in this case, which is under the umbrella rubric of Army Special Operations Forces to include the Army of Northern Virginia, the unit, uh, Rangers, and all of those, this particular slice of Army Special Operations Forces and Army Special Forces which is referred to as Green Berets by those who weren't, it tends to be maybe the the single best representation I see of Alftrag's tactic. Because, of course, we have the mission planning that goes on, and they have a very clear idea of what their second level up, in this case, the A-team's apprehension and comprehension and situational understanding of what the battalion commander, the colonel, wants them to do once they've been deployed to whatever operation they're conducting at the time. It could be foreign internal defense in peacetime, or this could be a war operation. Whatever the case may be, I do think this may be the closest that we have in the United States Armed Forces, and I'll speak to the Army specifically, of having this kind of Alftragstaktik appreciation of mission planning And also making assumptions because of the degree of training that takes place in special forces and and SOF and SOCOM and the fact that SOCOM does recognize that its humans are the number one asset that it has and not the technology, not the platforms. There's a lot to be said for this. You can find that Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide January 2020 online. I recommend you uh, take a look at it. Again, war is indeed hell, but war is also complex. War is the ultimate playing field when it comes to complexity and chaos and those kind of things in human affairs, maybe in the most compressed time compression possible, where we all know plans go awry in our daily lives as civilians. We discover that not everything goes according to plan now, does it? Especially when you're traveling, for instance. But What I find interesting about this, and I recommend Shamir's book and Don Vandergriff's books on Mission Command, is wrap your head around what these authors are trying to say. And it it really isn't that difficult. As a matter of fact, it is elegantly simple. What it means is that simply assume that Murphy's Law is the law of the land when it comes to armed conflict. Train accordingly before one participates in warfare, learn intent, get the vision, and know what the strategic and maybe even grand strategic end state is of a given conflict and the possibility of success in these conflicts 
may be much greater than they have been in the past. Again, thanks for listening. Any further uh, conversations you wish to have with me as a listener, you can reach me at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. And I am still tilting at windmills to find a way to put together a website in which I can compile book recommendations and maybe even have a forum where I can have a more active and contemporaneous discussion and conversation with listeners to this podcast. And I thank you once again for taking the time to listen to me. And this is Bill, out.